And, um, yeah, we'd love to see you, but it's great um, to be with you all this morning. And as Dave said, we are um, finally, some of you are thinking, at the end of our series on the Nicene Creed. And um, if you're new to the church um, or you're visiting us today, or even if maybe you've just been sneakily having a cheeky snooze during the sermon over the past sort of eight sessions, um, we have been studying together the Nicene Creed, which is this great um, statement of faith written by the church fathers um, forever and ever ago. I don't know how long, so we'll go with a long time ago. And, um, and we've been looking at what theology has gone in to the making of this creed. And what do these little sort of theological sound bites, these statements of faith, what do they actually have to do with our lives? How do they actually affect my Monday morning at work? How do they actually affect the way that we raise our kids, the way that we host a dinner party? What impact do these have on our lives? And we've now come to the very end, um, the final stanza of the creed, which says this. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So it's a biggie today. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll delve in. Jesus, thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes to bring all truth to light. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you be moving in this room right now. Speak to each one of us, God. Would you open our hearts? Reveal your truth to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What do you think of when I say the word hope? What kind of images does it conjure up for you? Maybe you're hoping that your sports team will win this season. I have it in good faith that there was an important football match on yesterday which caused quite a lot of shouting from my husband in the living room whilst I was preparing this talk. Um, so maybe you were hoping that, that your team, your guys, were going to win. I, for one, was hoping that um, Ireland was going to win the Six Nations rugby until England destroyed us last week. And um, I know that's an unpopular opinion in this room, but that's where I'm at. Um, or maybe, maybe you're hoping for that big promotion at work. Maybe you're hoping that that guy or girl that you have your eye on might, uh, might chat to you this week, might notice you. Maybe you're actually just hoping that this week at work will be better than the last because you're just really struggling with your job. We are hope-orientated creatures, aren't we? We are forwards-leaning. We're always looking to what is ahead. And that's what this final stanza of the creed is all about. Hope. Hope for what is coming in the future. Hope of bodily resurrection and of heaven. And do you know what's really interesting? I don't know if any of you will have noticed. This part of the creed starts differently to every other week we've looked at. Have you noticed? It always starts with, we believe in. So we believe in what in the Father. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And then it changed a little bit last week when we looked at baptism. We acknowledged one baptism. But this week, we get an altogether different verb. This week, it starts with, we look for. And you know, if you look this word up 
in, uh, in the original Greek. The word they use here, it's about expectation, and it, it brings up all this image of kind of leaning into something, really actively, intentionally looking towards someone, something. It's a forward orientation, and it's actually the same verb that they use in the Gospels. You might remember there's this one moment where these people come up to the disciples, and they're like, is Jesus, is he really the Messiah, or should we look for another Should we be looking out, actively expecting and searching for another? And so these guys are sitting down together to write the Nicene Creed, and they use this verb, we look for. We are waiting, we are expectant, we're leaning in for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so ultimately, today we're going to be looking at expectancy and hope. But I think we have two problems today when it comes to the issue of hope. And the first is this. I think that hope in our language, in our culture, it kind of has more to do with like a a positive optimism or like wishful thinking than it does real expectancy or concrete assurance. So think about it when you use hopefully in a sentence. So are, are you coming to the party tonight? Yeah, hopefully I'll be there. Do you see it's, it's actually a way of sowing a seed of doubt into your answer? I'll hopefully, it's like a, a positive optimism. Will Ireland make a comeback and win the Six Nations next year? Hopefully they will. But do you see the, do you see the doubt in there? But Christian hope is entirely distinctive. When the Bible tells us to hope in heaven and the life to come, what that actually means is have concrete assurance. Stand on this. Lean on this. Look for the resurrection. See, the only question mark in the Christian hope of heaven is not if, but when. It's scary how much meaning we can lose sometimes over semantics and the words we use. And so Christian hope is distinctive. It's designed to be leaned on, to be stood on with absolute assurance. But we have a second hope problem. And that is that it's actually really hard to hold fast, to hope for something, if you're not really entirely sure what it is you're hoping for. Because if you don't really know what it is or how it works, it's hard to kind of lean any real expectation on it. It won't actually become a part of our everyday lives. I um, I listened to a talk this week, and it was entitled um, Fluffy Clouds and Chubby Babies. And it was all about heaven and these kind of weird, cliched kind of images that get conjured up in our mind when we talk about heaven. Like, why this whole chubby baby playing a harp, floating around in the club? Where did that, where did that actually <laughs> come from? I had this bizarre moment at a hen party last night in between games, like chatting with some people. Where did this baby come? Like, where did this idea of heaven come from? We get this, this weird, cloudy, kind of cliched image. I remember being in, in Sunday school as a child, and... I don't know how many of you were, went to Sunday school as children, but um, if you did, you'll probably remember the amazing, the secret weapon, the ultimate 
um, kind of tool of a Sunday school teacher, which is the fuzzy felt board. Am I right? That is like the best way, apparently, to ever explain a point about a Bible story to a child. And still to this day, when I think of certain Bible stories, I picture like the little fuzzy felt Jesus, who was like this kind of Swedish looking guy. And, um, and so we were in Sunday school and we were looking at the topic of heaven. And I don't know what little things they had on the fuzzy felt. I think there were some clouds and uh, just Jesus <laughs> in his Swedish glory. And um, and we're there looking at heaven, and the Sunday school teacher is like, she kind of finishes her, her talk, her presentation on heaven, but the preacher downstairs is talking on a little bit too long, and so she's got extra time. And she's like, okay, kids, boys and girls, any questions on heaven? <laughs> Everyone's hand goes up. And um, for me personally, I had watched the film um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Anyone ever... I've never seen that. I love dogs, so I was like, there's loads of dogs there. I'm good. I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm going. That sounds like my dream. And so we're like, but what else is there? What, what is going on in heaven? And she's like, well, children, I will tell you. Um, there is, um, there's lots of gold there. The Bible says the streets are paved with gold. And we're all like, wow, that sounds amazing. But what else? She's like, um... Yeah, and the, the sea is made of glass. We're like, wow, that's weird, but kind of cool. I'm like, but what else? And she's like, okay, kids, time to finish up. And she kind of ferries us back into church, and the preacher's still going, and they're like, why are all these children coming in? And, but the truth is, is that she really, she didn't really have anything else to tell us. She wasn't really sure how to, how to talk about heaven. And so we kind of end up with this sort of confusing collection, don't we, of images and thoughts. And we're picturing clouds and these chubby babies and the harps and the gold. And it's so kind of vague and confusing that it actually doesn't really have any bearing on our lives, does it? And although we certainly can't know everything that there is to know about heaven, it's one of the more mysterious parts of the Bible, we can't know it all, but the New Testament makes it really clear that we can know some things about it. And not just that we can, but that we must. That's why the creed ends with, we look for. We must orientate ourselves towards what is to come. And this is crucial, because a vague hope is really hard to sustain. It's really hard to hold on to something in our hearts that is fuzzy and confusing. And so we're going to look at this final part of the creed, and as we do, we must not view heaven through some lens of contemporary cultural hope. We've got to see it as biblical hope, creedal hope, concrete assurance. So what actually is the hope that we have? What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, firstly, um, as the creed says, the resurrection of the body. So this is kind of the part of the creed and the Bible that gets a little The Walking Dead, if you've seen that television show. Um, because the promise of the Bible is that our bodies will actually be raised from the dead, just like Jesus was after he died. Turn with me if you've got a Bible or a smartphone to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 20. 
And I'm going to jump around a little bit, so just let your eye follow down the page and see where I've jumped to. Starting at 20 and moving down to 44. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So here Paul's spelling out a timeline of how this is going to work. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I'm like, yes, that is a great question, Paul. But he says, you foolish person, sadly. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What Paul is saying here is that the resurrection of Jesus, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. Okay, and when he returns, we also who believe in him will be raised from the dead bodily, as in up from our graves, raised from the dead. But what will we be like? Will it be like a kind of weird walking dead, ghostly sort of vibe? What will it be like? Well, what we need to do if we want to know what it's like is we have to look at the first fruits. We have to look at Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is the only person to be resurrected into glory. You might say, well, what about Lazarus? But Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, but raised from the dead into the same old body, so he still went on to die. Jesus is the only man to have ever been raised into glory. And so if we want to know what this bodily resurrection is is going to look like, we look at the first fruits. And when Jesus came back from the dead in his resurrected, restored, glorified form, we know that he looked like a man. Mary mistook him for a gardener. He had chats with people walking along the road. He came back to life in his body. That's why when they looked for his corpse, they couldn't find it. He was resurrected in his body, but it was a glorified body. And so he looked like himself and yet a little bit different. He walked, he talked to people. He ate a big fish supper on the beach. He really wasn't at all ghost-like if he was eating fish. And so with Jesus as our first fruits, as our only model of resurrection, we can see that the resurrection of the body is actually about this body being transformed. And this is so crucial because when Jesus talks about us being raised from the dead, he's not using a metaphor for our, our souls kind of slipping away and going off to heaven. That's actually a Greek view of eternity. The New Testament is emphatically clear that this is not the Greek idea of the soul slipping away and finally escaping the material world. 
We're talking about the very unique idea of a material body being remade. And so what this tells me about the world that is to come is that we won't float around like these chubby babies and their harps. We won't be orbs kind of floating around and being all spacey in the clouds. We will walk, we'll talk, we'll hug, we will eat. And so the spiritual body that we will be raised from the dead in is maybe a lot more earthy looking than we might expect. And you know, Christians like back in the day, I think they had a much clearer revelation of this than we sometimes do. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that like how weird it is that, you know, all those old like churches and cathedrals, that they were actually built on top of people's bodies. So saints who had died, they'd like build a church on top of it. And then to get even weirder, they would then build a graveyard right out the front that you have to walk through when you want to go to church. It's like the opposite of sort of seeker friendly, isn't it? It's like step one, don't build your building atop of bodies. And step two, don't build a freaking graveyard right outside of your church. It's so unwelcoming. It feels kind of morbid, doesn't it? Like imagine, good morning, welcome to our church. Did you enjoy the cemetery on your way in? It's like, who wants to see that? But the thing is, is that for Christians throughout the ages, the cemetery was not a statement about the finality of life. It was a signpost of hope. And so it's said that every time you come to worship, you walk past this great company of saints to be reminded that we're all awaiting something greater, something better. And so the grave wasn't bad news. The cemetery wasn't bad news. It was a sign of hope, of the resurrection that is to come. I wonder if we've lost a little bit of that, that kind of robust, concrete assurance that the grave is not the end. And so what do we mean when we say we look for the resurrection of the dead? We mean that when Jesus comes back, our decaying, decomposing bodies will somehow be supernaturally given new properties and raised to become a glorified body like Jesus. It might sound a lot like a Michael Jackson thriller video, but that is what we believe. <laughs> that is what the Bible promises, the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection is not an escape from the body. It's the redemption and glorification of the body. And do you know why that is so important, why that matters? It's because God created us. And God is not the kind of God who creates us and then kind of moves on to something different. He comes and redeems that which he created. He makes it perfect. And so we look for the bodily resurrection and then secondly, we look for the life of the world to come. And now it's important to note that the phrase here, um, it literally means the life of the age that is coming. So it's not world like cosmos or place, so much as an age like anos or eon, like era. And why does that matter? I think it matters because what God is doing is bringing in a new era that is actually already breaking in. It's not talking about a far-off world. 
It's an era, and we actually get a foretaste of what it's like to live in heavenly reality, even now. Because what happens when we become Christians is that we begin to live within the kingdom of God. We begin to follow a new king, and so we begin to experience a foretaste of this age that is to come. Forgive me, this is super cheesy, but I think it's quite helpful. N.T. Wright makes this joke. He says, um, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. I know, it's terrible, but hopefully you'll remember it because it's that cheesy. It's not the end of the world. It's, it's already begun. It's breaking in even now. And so every time someone gets supernaturally healed, it is a foretaste of the era that is coming when there is no sickness. Every time we encounter God in worship, we get a foretaste of that era where we'll spend all our days worshiping him. Every act of kindness towards someone who's in need or struggling is a foretaste of the era where there will be no more tears and no more suffering. So right now we get to live in this foretaste, but the Bible says that what's coming is this whole age, this whole era takes over. It's the world that is coming. So what is this world? What does the Bible actually say? about heaven. Please turn with me again if you've got your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to start at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. To those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, there's two really crucial words in this passage talking about the new heaven. And one of my absolute favorite Bible teachers of all time, Timothy Keller, said that when he spotted these two words, it literally changed his life and the way that he thought about this topic. And those words are coming down. I saw a holy city coming down out of heaven. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. See, for many of our conceptions of heaven, we think of this kind of individual souls rising up, escaping the material world. But what you have here is heaven coming down, coming here and transforming the earth. 
And so along with our resurrected and glorified bodies, we'll have a redeemed and glorified planet. John says what is coming is an absolutely rewoven, perfect, healed, material world when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you feel how personal and intimate that is? It's not us sort of floating up to this distant God. It's him coming to us, wiping our tears, making everything new. It's going to be a world in which people hug each other because they're going to have arms and bodies. And we're going to enjoy um, redeemed and renewed and glorified mountains and stars, whatever that might look like. I don't know, but I know it's going to be amazing. I know it's going to be the best thing that we could ever experience. We're not going to be floating ghosts. We're going to eat like Jesus did. Because the nature of this hope is not just sort of pie in the sky when we die. It's a feast on earth. And he writes, says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That is, after all, what the Lord's prayer is about. And most importantly, when this happens, our relationship with God will be totally healed and he will dwell with us completely. And when our relationship with God is healed, that means every other relationship will be put right. So there'll be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more dying, no more death. Everything that is sad and hurtful will be gone. That is the nature of this wonderful, renewed world that is to come. Glenn Packiam says, heaven is not about evacuation and compensation. It's not about God kind of coming down and picking us up from earth and sort of taking us back to his place and we're, like after he's heard all about our struggles and the injustices that we face, he doesn't just kind of pick us up out of it and take us elsewhere to sort of give us an ice cream and say it's, it's all okay now. It's not about evacuation and compensation. It is him coming down to reign, to put his enemy under his feet once and for all, all the suffering, all the injustice, all the torment, to get rid of it and to make this place new so that death itself will be no more. It's Jesus saying to us, it's Jesus looking us in the eye and saying, I know that this world has been a place of sorrow and sickness and death and suffering and injustice and poverty and disease, but you know what? When I come to reign, I will banish every disease, every sin, every sickness, every pain of death, and I will make the whole world new again, and then we're going to live there. We're going to move in there. The dwelling place of God will be with mankind. So why is this hope important? Why do we need to lean forward and orient ourselves towards the resurrection of the body and the life to come? Because no matter what we are facing in this world, this promise of hope is an anchor for our souls that will sustain us. So when John wrote that passage, Revelation 21, he's writing it specifically as a letter to a church. And he's writing it to Christians who are about to suffer unimaginable things. 
suffering worse than I think probably most of us and hopefully most of us will never see. Because at the end of the first century, the Roman emperor at the time, a guy called Domitius, was the first emperor to do widespread, large-scale persecution of Christians. Their homes were taken away and plundered. They were sent into the arena and devoured by wild animals whilst people watched. They were impaled on stakes. They were covered in tar and set on fire while they were still alive. They were crucified by the hundreds and even thousands along the highways in and out of Rome so that everybody coming and going to that city could see the Christians dying excruciating deaths. That is what these people were facing. And so what did John write to them? What did he give them to sustain them? He gave them this, this hope, the new heavens and the new earth, the bodily resurrection. And do you know what? It worked. It's a fact of history that it worked. We know that these early Christians, they took their suffering with such poise and such peace. They would sing hymns whilst on the cross. They would sing hymns whilst being set on fire. And it's a historical fact that the more Christians they killed, the more the Christian movement grew. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is like seed because they more they killed, the more they killed us, the more our movement grew. Why? Because as people watched them living like this and dying like this, they said, these people have got something. They had hope. They had seen the best and the worst that this life has to offer, but their hearts were totally captivated and captured by this vision of the future. And it's a living, real, gritty hope that has the ability to nourish us and sustain us even in the midst of heartache and sorrow. Because we can know with absolute assurance that a time is coming and has even begun when he will wipe each and every tear from our eyes. The resurrection of Jesus was God's announcement that sin will not have the last word. Sickness will not have the last word. That sickness that is attacking you and hurting your body and making you suffer, it will not have the last word. Resurrection was God's announcement that victory is coming for those who are in Christ. Human beings are absolutely hope-shaped creatures. I want to close with two illustrations about hope. And the first is this. There were two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon, and their penalty was they had to do 10 years of hard labor in the dark in this dungeon, 10 years. And right before they were thrown in, someone came and informed the first man that his wife and child had died. And then right before they went in, someone came and spoke to the second man and let him know your wife and your child are alive and they're well. And so these two men go into the dungeon, and you might be able to imagine what happened. The first man, after just over a year, it just was too much. The hard labor was too much. The, the dark and the dingy and the cold and the lack of food, and he just, his body just gave up, and he died. The second man, meanwhile, labored and toiled and worked, and 10 years later, he stepped out of the dungeon a free man. 
It's not really that surprising, is it? But think about it. They had the same circumstances, same experiences, same surroundings, same work to do. And yet they experienced their now in two completely different ways because of what they believed about their future. Our present is completely controlled by what we believe about our future. The second illustration is this. You put two guys in a room, tiny little room with a desk, dingy lit, and you say, you need to input these series of figures, the same series of figures, all day, every day, 10 hours a day for a year. And you tell the first guy, at the end of the year, if you do this, 10 hours a day, same inputting, same data, at the end of this year, you'll be given a salary of 20,000 pounds. And then you take the second guy out and you say, 10 hours a day, every day, for a year, but at the end of this year, you'll be given a salary of 20 million pounds. And again, you can imagine what's going to happen, right? The first guy goes in and it's so tedious and it's so boring and it's so dull and dark. He's like, I've had enough. So after a month or two, he's a quiz. He walks away. Now the second guy, he's like whistling on his way to work. <laughs> 20 million pounds. It's not tedious for me at all. You see, they were experiencing the same circumstances in two totally different ways because of what they believed about their future. It makes all the difference. Do you believe that Jesus is really coming back? That he will end all suffering and pain? Because if you do, that means your destiny changes. And the way that you live in the present becomes totally different. You know, none of us are probably ever going to be thrown to lions or set on fire or suffer to those degrees, but we do walk through hardships. And maybe some of us here today have come in with a really heavy heart because of what we're facing. But I want you to know that it's real historical fact that people taking this living hope into the center of their lives, they triumphed over this stuff. So what about me and you? When the truth of that hope pierces us, when we realize it's true, that the worst evil you can face here is only a passing thing, that there's beauty in life beyond what we can even imagine, that changes our destiny. Because our present is profoundly affected by what we believe about our future. You know, even between the first service and this one, a guy came and spoke to me and He's having a really hard, he's just exhausted and burned out. And he said, I didn't, honestly didn't know how I was going to face the next two weeks. But yesterday I booked a flight home. I'm going to go home, I'm going to see my family. And he was like, I didn't know how I'd face the next two weeks. But now I know that at the end of those two weeks I'm going home. Those two weeks are fine, they're manageable. Because our experience of the now is so profoundly affected by the hope that we have of the future. And we who believe in Jesus have a living hope, an anchor for our souls. I'm going to close with a quote from the Narnia Chronicles um, from the book The Last Battle. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. 
Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for this living hope that we have. I want to thank you that because of your death and your resurrection, we have hope in the life to come. And I want to pray for each one of us right now that you would do a work of hope in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, that you would come and make this truth, this hope so real to each one of us that no matter what we are facing, we would come out victorious because we know where we're going. We know the destiny that you have for us. We know the hope that we have in your name. And I pray that you would do a work of hope right now. Bring restoration, bring joy in Jesus' name. Amen.